Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. In today's episode, Professor of Theology and Peace Studies, Father Emmanuel Katangale, and Father Jean-Baptiste Mukihehe discuss the genocide in Rwanda on its 25th anniversary, the process of healing from traumatic memories, and more. This episode is one of many conversations recorded during the Croc Institute's Building Sustainable Peace Conference in November of 2019. Listeners should be aware that the following discussion does include firsthand accounts of the genocide in Rwanda. My name is Father Emmanuel Katongole. I teach here at Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame at Croc Institute and Theology Program. So, so happy this afternoon to welcome my friend, Father Jean-Baptiste Mvukihehe from Rwanda and to have this conversation with Father Jean-Baptiste. So, most welcome, Father John. Thank you. This year, as many of you know, marks the 25th year since the genocide in Rwanda in 1994. So one of the questions that we are thinking through is, what does the healing of memory look like 25 years down the road? And so it's good to have Father Jean-Baptiste because this is the ministry in which he's working for the healing of memories. But before I get into this conversation, I also have to tell you that Father Jean-Baptiste has survived genocide. In 1997, was at high school when his school was attacked by the militia and they were told to separate and the students refused and the militia started shooting and he himself survived. So we begin with there, Father John Baptiste. What do you remember of that event of 1997? Yeah, thank you again for having me. That happens in the evening of March 18th in 1997. They were at our revising session in the evening, and all of a sudden we heard the gunshots all over the place. It was raining at that time, but we could not really understand what was going on by that time, and uh, it's only something like 10 minutes after that we saw some people breaking to our classroom, and because of these gunshots around, we had started hiding under the desks. So they said nothing else than saying, yeah, we are here, you should not waste our time. Now we want the Hutus to be this side and the Tutsis to be the other one. And none of us actually moved from where he was or she was here hiding. They repeated twice, third time, and no reaction. And so one of them ran to our female colleague, and he said, I saw you yesterday because she had received, I think, her cousin on a visit the day before. And the radar said, yeah, I saw you, and uh, I think this, uh, it was your time to die. So he shot her dead right away. Right in front of all of you. Yeah. And so maybe he was thinking that if we see someone of us dying, being shot dead, then we'll turn back to ourselves and say, yeah, this is serious, and begin to separate. We did not. They went on asking us to separate, and we did not. 
And so at a certain moment, they said, yeah, they started shooting randomly. Many of us were wounded, and of course, some lost their lives right there. How many kids died? We lost eight kids in two classrooms. Others lost their legs. Even now, others can't even walk normally. We still have those who have gone with these injuries for many years. And yeah, we check on them regularly. So how old were you, Jean-Baptiste, at that time? By then, I was 17. 17. Yeah. So fast forward for us. So you were yeah. wounded in the school. Then what happened next and how do you become a priest? <laughs> All right. This is interesting. <laughs> yeah. I'm taken to the hospital in Kabagai. That's in the center of the country. And I was not the one to be injured the most, for sure. But then as I was being treated along with the others, I met a brother a religious brother, Brother Rini, who came over to to check on us and said, I'm not having enough courage to go back to that school. And then I was looking forward to go to another school. I asked if they could welcome me in the Bima and Science School of Science. And so I went there. Then after the high school education, when the idea of thinking of who to become started crossing my mind. Yeah, the option also becoming priest was part of it. And I don't know how this uh, became the most important one. But yeah, when I look back now to what I am and what I do, I think it was preparing me to do that. Because the ministry I have been involved in so far, takes me, in a way, to that particular aspect of listening to people's stories, looking forward to a better future with them. And so that's how it's all happened, if I would just put it uh, very shortly. So you joined the Palatines, you get in the formation, and immediately after your ordination, you are sent to this particular parish of Ruhango, yeah. uh, where there is a strong devotion, I understand, to the divine mercy. Yes. What happened? Why was Ruhango so significant? Why this parish where you started your ministry? It was significant, first of all, because of its own story. We were glad that in 1994 genocide, uh, Father Stanislas, who is our confrere from Poland, was the pastor there. And he had tried to bring lay people together there before. Uh, nurturing them this spirit of taking seriously the faith. And what makes it really different place is that during the genocide, we had people from the Hutu community, Hutu group, who came over and took care of the their brothers and sisters, Tutsi, who had taken refuge in that parish for long, long, long days. And they stayed together cooking for them the meals. And even when... The food could no longer be available because, you know, it was difficult henceforth to accede to it, the situation becoming even worse. They stayed with them and, yeah, looking forward on a hopeful, you know, uh, future in this situation. So no genocide happened in Ruhango? You would say it happened, but nobody of those who took refuge at that particular uh, parish 
was killed. They held hand in hand together until the RPF soldiers came in and it was over. Well, this is uh, significant because we hear many stories of communities, Christian community churches, where a lot of people were killed. So why, again, you think Ruhango remained exceptional? I think three things can be highlighted, and they would be considered as the milestones of this particularity. First of all, the community, the Christian community, I think was approached differently. The Father Stanislas Urbaniak, who was the pastor, had initiated them in this divine mercy spirituality, where they go around really having this moment of uh, thinking and pondering about God's love. That becomes necessarily the love for the neighbor. And it's uh, really bore fruit. Uh, this spirituality, you know, how effort to tell the Christians that even though they are lay people, they should know their, their place and their role in the mission of the church and take serious their faith. This is the most important thing. Because sometimes you see there are people who were churchgoers, but who could not make a difference during mm. that time. The second thing, I think this approach of the pastor. The pastor was there for the Christians, both those who were persecuted and those who came in to help. So they had like one body together and to react, to see way forwards in this tumultuous situation of the genocide. So this unity of a pastor with the community, this being together beyond the differences, I think that's something that made a difference. The third is that within this situation, they were very much helped by the spirituality of divine mercy. They knew that this was a particular moment of encountering the Lord and being strengthened by him. If you listen to the stories from Ruhango, you will see that all the miracles, because there are many, they take place around this sacrament of the Eucharist in adoration. We have just one that is remarkable. When paths were no longer available to go out and find food, those who were taking care for the refugees were thinking it was over. But then at a certain moment, they heard somebody hooting at the gate. They thought this was the car maybe of the militias. But then when uh, they had been trying to hold the refugees in hope, you know, cooking almost nothing. Imagine having on their cooking pot, putting water, they would lit up the fire. So the refugees, at least the children, when they look uh, out and they see the smoke, they say something is on, we are going to eat. Mm-hmm. But by that time, they had divided in two groups. One group was staying in the church, adoring the whole sacrament. Others were cooking, and they would keep on consulting each other. You are asking for food, we don't have it. Do you think the Lord is giving you some answer now? But when they have, they would just cook water and it dries up. It dries up four times when they were about to give up and uh, 
they had to say the truth to the refugees that they don't have anything to cook for them. It is then that they heard this man hooting at the gate. Yeah, they did just to go and see what was going on. They were also afraid. They thought this was maybe the militias coming in. But the great miracle is that somebody from Ruhango said, according to his testimony, because I, I had time also to listen to him, Father Stani has been here for this long. Maybe he's starving. Why don't I take some rice and, you know, beans to see how he can survive? And he had taken another refugee along the road. He put him in the boot of his car and some uh, sacks of rice. He was the one coming with the one refugee and this. For the these people who have been praying for food, and it is 3 p.m., the hour that is known, the hour of mercy, and they receive somebody who with rice and beans. What can be a bigger miracle than that? Yes, a real so, miracle. Yeah, that's what happened. And this was the starting point of the center to be put in place later on, because those who knew how they were helped by this adoration, after the genocide, they would come in and ask Father Stani, we think, even those who were not Christians, we think we should find a place where this man, Jesus, <laughs> who was there with us during the genocide, would stay for adoration, because they are adored and we got food. Okay, this was the, the whole... A story, one of the many, of course. And you see, they have this strong bond. So after the genocide, this unique place yeah. then develops into a center, a center for the healing mm-hmm. of memories. Mm. What do people do when they come to this center for the healing of memories? Whether they are those who have participated in the genocide or those who have survived, what do they do? Uh, first of all, people come there from all the walks of life. And we are happy that this center is there for Rwandans and for the people from neighboring countries. And for the survivors of the genocide, for those who took part in it as perpetrators, and those who are there without understanding what was going on, because that's how I try to put the categories of this population around. And what do we do? We have so many spiritual exercises. Of course, most of them are geared at uh, listening to people's stories in uh, spiritual guidance and in uh, open spiritual retreats and workshops. So all these are means we put in place as to have them as platforms that will be conducive to this healing of memories, to this spiritual healing and the healing from the woundedness that they take from uh, this particular situation. So we listen to people, we pray for them, and we accompany them in the journey of reconciliation. Reconciliation with themselves, at the, the individual personal level, but as also reconciliation with their neighbors, and with God, of course, the part of the sacrament is also there, you know, reconciliation in confession. But mostly people like these platforms where they can share their stories or where they can also have clear 
ways of reaching out to those they are having problems with, those they wronged, those they think they are still having something to fix linked to their story in common. And so we have been, uh, after a long time of guidance, taking also concrete steps to making it possible for people to encounter, to meet. So, so have, you, have you seen some very concrete stories of healing? Of course. Everything that is done in Ruhango is recorded at the right time. I mean, when somebody has gone through this process, we ask the person if he can offer a testimony. So we have numerous testimonies. Dr. J. Kearney of the Creighton University once came down to Ruhango and I introduced him to this room where I have these tapes, written testimonies, and he said, I wish I could listen to all this. But we have numerous testimonies of healing and people have been passing on the information. That's why when somebody is having trouble within himself or herself, linked to anything that is pertaining reconciliation, he can or she can find somebody who tells, you can go to Ruhango, you will find help. So it has been a place where people regain hope and start thinking again about the possible future together. So you did help setting up that center of healing and reconciliation yeah. in Ruhango. Yeah. And it's connected with the work you are doing right now in Kabuga? Yeah. Now, the Palatines have started in the 1990s this initiative of bringing in the divine mercy spirituality. But they didn't know that this is going actually to be a place of hope. It is slowly by slowly that these centers are taking shape. So when I went there in 2007, right after my ordination, it was center already running, but we put in some important aspects that would help really to have a systematic work done, evaluated, and eventually where people can also learn from what is happening, what is being done. So that's why we put up this, for example, service of info and uh, communications. It is uh, more or less designed to be keeping all the information of testimonies of reconciliation. And so people can also do their own systematic work. We have already some students coming in and doing this, uh, writing their final papers from that, and we are glad. But people can listen, actually, to what people are saying. And we, in all the celebration at Ruhango, because we have also a big healing mass each first Sunday of the month, people coming in... Uh, around 25,000. It takes place in the open place. On the Vernimers uh, Sunday, that would be as far as 100,000 people mm. go gathered there. This is a huge mass, you understand? So do you work only with Catholics because you're talking about mass, divine mass, or you work with beyond? Beyond. Of course, we are there as Palatines, priests. We work with the Emmanuel community, another Catholic lay community mainly, but this is open to all, especially for the services that we offer. 
those people are not bound to become Catholics in order to be helped by that. And we actually, in some platforms, welcome those who can also share their testimonies from other religions. No problem for that, because the, the testimonies from others also are very helpful. Here is a question maybe from what you have learned on this journey. Yeah. You work as a priest using the divine mercy. We're talking about from a Catholic spirituality. So, and we're talking about the healing of memories. Do you think one needs a spirituality in order to engage, embark on this journey of the healing of memories? Or what role does spiritual life play in this journey of the healing of memories? Yeah. A spirituality is always a tool. If you have this particular spirituality, then this is an advantage because you are like having a reserve from which you can fetch what you need to feed people, as it were. But I think spirituality itself becomes a tool that is effective because it speaks to what is human, naturally. So if you have a spirituality, it's even better. If you don't have one, you have humanity, and I usually say that. That's why maybe when we talk to people, when we welcome them, when they come to us, they don't come as believers. They come as people who are suffering, and they think we can help out, which we do. The spirituality in this particular sense really has a great role to play. Because, and I like to use this analogy, you are standing in a road, you see where you are heading to, but the one who is looking for the direction does not know. So it's you taking the person step by step to the goal. And the spirituality plays this role. Within the minister, it gives landmarks he has to follow. And for the person who is being helped out whenever he follows the landmarks, he also becomes the person who who can say, yeah, it is working. So let's talk about the national level. Yeah. 25 years after the genocide in Rwanda, where do you think Rwanda as a nation is in terms of its journey? I would say many things in this, but one or two, a couple of things I would highlight. First of all, you see, the genocide is a very huge tragedy and very complex. I used even to say that there are many genocides as there are survivors. Because when we talk about the genocide to somebody who has lost his or her whole family members, and you are talking about genocide to a woman who was raped during the whole week, and you are talking about genocide in the front of a man who was uh, obliged to kill his own wife because they didn't belong into the same ethnic groups. You see, you have people who have different experiences of the genocide. And even when you talk about healing then, there are people who have made step, really visible step ahead. But there are others who are still struggling with these contradicting stories within them, their hearts. Yeah, it's therefore very hard to say where we are as a nation. 
But this particular moment for me, it's important. That's why this importance of storytelling and story listening too is also important. Whenever you listen to the person's story, you are listening to this particular way or different way of his own, her own, of looking to the genocide from the viewpoint of what she was and how he underwent it. Therefore, the second thing is to say there are many things that are being tried out. I would say sometimes in Rwanda they say when you say this uh, gachacha court is initiative of having the justice for the victims done, and that was concluded already in 2005, I think. We are still going on with the ordinary initiatives like Umuganda initiative to bring people together in community work. This program, Ndumunyarwanda, I am Rwandan, so as people to look at their common belonging as Rwandans beyond them being Tutsi or Hutu. Well, these are initiatives, but still, they are small steps in a journey that for somebody who sees and encounters people is still long. But granted, Rwanda also has made a lot of progress in social, economic, and yeah. development and yes. of the nation. Mm. And what about the church? The church is also making some progress, but being somehow hindered in a way in this particular process towards reconciliation by what was her own story in this. It is known that uh, the evangelization of Rwanda missionaries came along with the colonial masters. And so the church is always accused as being part of this hatred nurturing process that, you know, had to reach this level of Hutu killing their Tutsi fellow citizens. It's important to understand that this has been like really a hindrance in the process of the child doing something official, I mean, institutionally. Because the church at the various level of the personal initiatives within is very much alive. Mm. But the institution called the church is trying, but really not, you see, it has, the church has a lot also to be going through and try to go beyond because remember the church is at the same time <laughs> accused, but the church is also a victim of this genocide. No social body has lost its member at a higher rate than the church. Priests, lay people, consecrated people, and having these churches full of bodies, this part was not just uh, that a priest would come and say, kill people here. This is more of a political ideology that could make this possible beyond what a priest is able to do. I think it's complex, but then three things I can highlight are to be noted here. First of all, the church has been encouraging all these private or would say personal experiences initiatives. Like in Ruhango, we used to be a center. Now I was working with the board established by the bishop. It's become a shrine, canonically recognized at the diocesan level. 
it means they recognize what is going on, what is being done. In Kabuga, we have been organizing conferences on reconciliation and healing. And so there are some significant important things that are being done. And the Caritas Rwanda being an actor in uh, supporting people who are left without anything, helping out the orphans for their studies, building houses for the people who didn't have anywhere to stay. Yeah, they are like 25 years already. So many things have been done and we are very glad. A final question, Father Jean-Baptiste. What have you learned? If you can distill for us a few lessons of your own journey of being wounded, healing, and now being in the Ministry of Reconciliation and Healing. What have you learned also along the way as you have worked with people engaged in this Ministry of Recovering or Healing from Memorials? Yeah, the first lesson I learned, I also related to this uh, big title of Father Henri Nguyen. As people who have gone through this story, history, that is very sad and dark, even though we can consider ourselves as wounded, but at the same time we are the actors of healing, so we should be, as he said, I mean Nguyen, wounded healers. We support each other. We fetch from this suffering story and see in the light of the gospel what can be the light that leads us ahead of this moment yeah. and keep people's hope. The second thing is in my own ministry, I came to realize that nothing happened in my own life that was not preparing me to do this because whatever I did, I found myself being like yeah, looking back to what I was. Oh, so this in front of a person like this, and I can listen to the person this way and suggest this and that. Part of it is that I know something. So my own suffering story, history of suffering, I would say better, is also part of the solutions I have. Being compassionate, thinking that Despite the difficulties people can be having on his or her shoulders, she or he has to be courageous enough and look again ahead. I think I take it from this long journey of my own sufferings as well. Yeah, the last is also, despite that the way is very long, I think the simple experiences of people who could make it out are also encouraging facts. So that tell in a way and in a stronger way that actually reconciliation is not a lost battle in advance. It's a possible journey you can go into and have hope to achieve peacefully. So have really it done and achieved reconciliation is possible. I can, uh, from this what I have been noticing, I can tell because I have evidences. Well, thank you very much, Father Jean-Baptiste, for sharing with us your story, your incredible story, but also for the work that you are doing, accompanying so many people in this long, difficult, but hopeful journey of the healing of memories. We are very, very grateful to you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Crack Cast. 
Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to learn more about the Building Sustainable Peace Conference, where this episode was recorded, and that brought over 450 Peace Studies practitioners and scholars to the Notre Dame campus, visit croc.nd.edu slash building sustainable peace.